Thanks for checking out the GMH podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Four years after a Hamilton man went missing, he's been found alive in the U.S. The double-edged sword of Canadian immigration. Canada apparently has a new tornado alley. It's my biggest pet peeve, food waste. Attention caffeine lovers and Mac Hoops legend Sarah Gates joins us on the GMH podcast starting now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, police told us that a Hamilton man who's been missing for close to four years has been found alive. It's a remarkable story. Michael Samdas was last seen in Toronto September 5th, 2019, after he left his home in Stony Creek. And police say he was found via tips connected with third-party agencies in the southern U.S. At the time of his sudden disappearance, reports say Samdas, who was 40 when he disappeared, had been involved in an altercation with a homeless person, held overnight and then released by a court in Toronto. He then vanished until news broke last week that he had been found. CHML's Jennifer McQueen spoke with two of Michael's sisters, Risha Das and Leah Gerard, about the search for their brother and the reaction to the news that he was found. First, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me because I know, oh, I can only imagine that this has just been a, a whirlwind for you and your family. Um, it's incredible news, um, finding your brother after four years. So how are you all feeling right now? And it has just been a whirlwind because like there's just a whole bunch of moving pieces. Like locating him obviously is the biggest step in all this. I mean, first and foremost, and we accomplished that and we're mind blown that we did because of course, after being missing for four years and four years of speculating and four years of rumors and four years of like, all kinds of crazy things like we said like in the last four years we've had countless people we don't really believe in psychics and that kind of stuff but we've had like dozens of people call saying hey you know like you know i spoke to a medium i spoke to a psychic i spoke you know i had a card reader and they all came back with the same story that um you know he's died and they all came up with really traumatic ways that he died there was times when wild goose chases because they said you know like one girl came to us and said you know I've been, um, I'm a medium. I speak to the people on the other side. Um, those who haven't rested yet, and your brother came to me. said, you know, he said there's a locker at the subway station, and the key can be found behind a mirror in your house. I mean, it was crazy. And we, we laid in bed, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, we're like, this is nonsense. This yeah. is just plain nonsense. This cannot be true. But, of course, when you're desperate for answers, you don't want to rule anything out because you never know. We could have been wrong. and we, Maybe this really is a thing. So... So we got out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we got in our vehicle, and we went and followed these clues. All the way to Toronto, to a subway station, hopping gates, trying to find this locker. Like, I mean, when I tell you wild goose chases, and, you know, we're coming back at 5 o'clock in the morning, we're nuts. Why would we just do that? <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're a Bible-believing, God-fearing, faith-driven family, right? Yeah. And we choose faith over fear every single time. But naturally, you know, fear is going to creep in because we're only human. Whether he's dead or alive, let's find him. Can you explain how they were able to locate him? Please bring me home. They took the case on and they reassigned the case on Tuesday. Okay. We did an intake because Nick, who's the owner, kind of called said, you know what, I think we need to put fresh eyes on this. And they have a system that's facial recognition technology. And they ran it through that and they got a hit. The very next day, I thought, okay, well, it looks like him, but 
Um, but he looks like he's just he's he's conquered the elements for the last four years. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're listening to a conversation that CHML's Jennifer McQueen had with two of Michael Samdas's sisters, Risha Das and Leah Gerard, about the nearly four-year-long search for their missing brother and the reaction to the news that he was found alive. When yeah. you saw that picture, were you like, yes, that's him? Yeah. You knew? Absolutely. Yeah, immediately. Yeah, immediately. But certain things will never change. Your eyes never change. Yeah. You can grow as much facial hair as you want and as long as you want and you can you know but your your eyes never change right and they tracked it down to him where he wasn't where he did think he was in the states and after a few phone calls they were able to confirm this image they found him in southern the southern u.s okay and they, um, so they, they called the local police department there and they confirmed that they had this person and they said, we think this is our missing person. And the police couldn't confirm. They called the local police department and said, you know, I think we found him. So the officers who are on Michael's case, the Hamilton Wellness Police Department, who were overlooking Michael's case, it was their day off. They all came in. Amazing. Right. And so, yeah. So please bring me home. Call and say, I think we got him. And they got a copy of the fingerprints and they sent it off to Toronto. Within 10 minutes, they were able to confirm it was him. Amazing. So then once they got the confirmation and obviously they filled each other in, everyone was excited. Everyone was dying to make that phone call. Police show up. We have a uniformed officer and we have a plainclothes officer. And it's usually not good news, right? Usually. So my mom had been like actively looking for him, literally just come back, no exaggeration, pulled in the driveway, Leah pulled in behind her and the police called her. And the police showed up and they said, we found him, he's alive. And we're like, my mom broke down, wailing. Like her wailing. Like you, you would think she heard the opposite. Right. <laughs> like, we're just like our, you know, you can, you can imagine like any, when you ever get any sudden news, yep. your brain is not really taking it in. You're in shock. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I said, where is he? And they said, he's in the southern U.S. And I'm like, pardon? Tell me how he crossed the border. He doesn't have a passport. And then we just kind of got into some detail. Okay, this is where he is. He's, you know, he's in good health, but we're not sure what his mental state is. Right. Like, that's that's where we're at. The biggest question we keep getting asked is, why are you going to bring him home? Of course we're going to bring him home. Here's the thing. Like, the Michael that we know wants to be home and wants to be his family and wants to be here for births and deaths and celebrations and a part of this unit. But the Michael that is struggling, he's in crisis. Um, I, we believe he's ill, right? We believe he's mentally ill, but to what degree, we don't know. So the goal is to get him well, right? That's the goal. And, I, you know, and coming back to where I in the very beginning of all this, as we know, the system is very broken to get to, get to that point is a very long, treacherous road. And it's going to take a lot of resources and time and persistence and all of everything. We're only on phase two of all this now. Right. How many phases are there? I don't know. We don't know. Yeah. It's all just one day at a time, I would imagine, at this point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right now, like, I think the next big question people are asking is, are you going to go see him? Um, all, eventually, yes. Yeah, eventually, yes. Just not yet. We're very, we're trying to be very strategic in the way that we approach it. Right. And and very sensitive in the way we approach it because we want to make sure this time when we, we have him back physically, we need to get him back here mentally and we need to pay him to be healthy again, healthy and whole. Wow. Yeah. What a story. Um, that's 
Incredible. I appreciate again you uh, taking the time to chat with us and I, I wish you guys all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you thank so much. Thank you guys. Take care, okay? Take care. It is a remarkable story. Remarkable, incredible, unbelievable. I can't imagine, you know, putting myself into these two sisters' shoes or even Michael's mom and getting that news that not only has he been found, but found alive and in the southern U.S. of all places. I mean, it is just a remarkable story. Best of luck to the Sam Des family. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Talked about immigration on the show yesterday. It was actually the focus of our poll question of the day based on a new report from Desjardins that suggests that Canada needs more immigrants to make up for aging demographics, even though it's going to put more pressure on the already strained housing market. And the question we asked you is, are you in favor of bringing more newcomers to Canada? And 69%, we had a great response, 69% said no, 31% said yes. And so with this new report in place and with some of the responses we got yesterday, I thought, let's talk to someone in the know. Joe Sandalock is a partner at Maman Sandalock Kingwell LLP and joins us now on GMH. Joel, good morning. How are you? Really good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on this Desjardins report and some of the issues it uh, it highlights? Well, I, I mean, intuitively, the report makes a lot of sense. I deal with uh, employers looking for workers every day. There are real shortages in the Canadian labor market that uh, really have to be met by foreign workers, and there's really almost no way around them at all. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there's both short and long-term consequences of, immig- of increasing immigration. And it's almost like if you could imagine, like it does tend to overheat the housing market, it does tend to have other effects, other strains, short-term strains on things like education, social services, things like that. But the problem is that if we don't increase the number of immigrants, there is a, demograph- a demographic uh, time bomb that is ticking. And as our population ages, as we tend to have fewer children as years go by, what happens is we're going to be left with an economy that really isn't able to support its aging population. We'll be stuck in a similar situation as Japan, where uh, they've really just destroyed their ability to grow simply because they've restricted immigration too much over the years. You can see it happening actually in a much more rapid way in Russia with the massive emigration of skilled workers and younger people. Uh, what's left of the economy that remains is honestly not much. So, you know, I can obviously appreciate the, you know, the effects on the housing market in particular. But, you know, the problem is, is that we have to deal with this, uh, both of these problems at the same time. You know, one of the problems with immigration is that immigration is a federal responsibility, a completely federal responsibility. Housing, on the other hand, and a lot of social programs are provincial and municipal responsibilities. So what happens is when we have two different governments with two different perspectives, not to say that one's right and one's wrong, but one is maybe short term and one is long term. uh, A lot of times the the ball gets dropped in the middle. And I think that's, you know, that's a lot of what people are reacting to is, you know, the the sense that people aren't really taking care of the short term, even though they may be taking care of the longer term. This is really a double-edged sword and a a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario. When we look at the numbers, however, I mean, Canada's population grew by more than a million last year, the most ever. We hit 40 million residents in this country. Is half a million immigrants per year by 2025, which is what the liberal government's goal is, is that too much or, or is that not enough? I mean, it depends. I mean, I think one of the things you have to remember is there's different kinds of immigrants. 
some immigrants are incredibly highly skilled. They bring great, uh, you know, they bring a great deal of uh, talent to the table. One of the things Canada has actually done very effectively for the last number of years, not just this government, but the previous government as well, has done a very good job of selecting immigrants and immigration selection has skewed towards younger people. They've skewed towards people who have an education in Canada or work experience in Canada. Those immigrants tend to be more adaptable. They tend to be more successful. And then more importantly, obviously, they they tend to stay and they tend to contribute. So, you know, when you say 500,000, I mean, the truth is, would you say 750,000 excellent people Canada could use? It's probably like most companies where, you know, maybe I don't have a job opening, but if I see somebody really incredible or really impressive, I might want to bring them on board and find a role for them after they're here. And that's, in a lot of ways, what this is analogous to. It's a good point. A couple more minutes with Joel Sandalock, a partner at Maman Sandalock Kingwell LLP on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about immigration in this country. I've heard from time to time that most immigrants who come to Canada leave within a decade. Is that true? And, and what is the impact if it is true? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, intuitively, a lot of immigrants do leave. I suppose suppose it depends on what you're calling an immigrant. Canada has a lot of foreign workers, a lot of people who come uh, with their their companies, a lot of people who come and uh, visa students, and they they study, and then they go back to their own country afterwards. Um, It doesn't really necessarily bother me, because the truth of the matter is, if somebody isn't working out, if somebody is having difficulty integrating or finding work in their field, probably the Canadian economy doesn't want them here. So having them here, having them try things out and then having them move on, you know, in a lot of ways may be the best thing, because what that means is that people who do stick around, the people who do uh, continue and remain and settle here tend to be better off uh, and tend to be, you know, tend to make us better off as well as well. In our discussion yesterday about immigration, one person texted in saying uh, they were against this because they don't vet them anymore and they see them as a burden on the system. Is there a tiny truth to that? There's a tiny truth to that in some categories of immigration. So, for example, Canada just recently brought an end to the Ukrainian immigration program. Those immigrants were not vetted. They were given three-year work permits when they arrived in the country, and you know, essentially, they just announced a program to permit them to stay. There's been there was no vetting for their education, their English or French or what have you. Um, but that being said, that's not most immigrants. Most immigrants, uh, what you'll find is they have you know, either a Canadian experience or education, or they meet uh, pretty rigorous criteria. Canada's actually recently announced a new program, a a really incredible one, where what they've done is they promised three-year open work permits to to people who were immigrants right now or on work permits in the United States, H-1B visas, which are highly skilled, uh, tend to be technical uh, technical workers, uh, to allow them to come to Canada. We're essentially picking the pocket of our neighboring countries for their their best and brightest immigrants. So Canada has been very very aggressive in the in recent years when it comes to bringing the best people in and keeping the best people here. But it's but obviously it's not every single person. A lot of those people have wives, they have husbands, they have kids uh, who are not necessarily the best and the brightest. But it's like every family, right? Everybody's got a, you know, everybody's got the brightest light and the you know, the darkest sheep, right? That is true. Joel, really appreciate your insight into this. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, pretty darn close. High winds, lots of damage, not fun.
Uh, we're talking about tornadoes as opposed to hurricanes, but nonetheless, uh, they uh, have uh, led to some strife in the capital region because emergency crews continue to clean up an Ottawa suburb after yet another tornado touched down last week, really with little to no warning. About 125 homes were damaged last Thursday. The latest twister uh, hit the capital area over the last few years, uh, including an EF3 tornado in 2018 that injured 25 people. Why are all of a sudden we're getting more and more tornadoes in this province? Well, let's ask an expert. This is a guy who chases these things. Mark Robinson is his name, storm chaser and meteorologist with the Weather Network, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mark, welcome to GMH. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I would have also approved of... uh... Thunderstruck by ACDC, so that was the other one. That would have been a great one, too. Next time, next <laughs> time. Uh, Ottawa hit again. Uh, Hamilton had an EF0 a couple of weeks ago. It didn't really create much damage. Uh, Barry has been battered a couple of times over the last couple of years. Is Ontario the new tornado alley of Canada? Well, you know, tor- tornadoes have always occurred uh, here here in Ontario. Like, we, we get a lot of them. It's sort of funny how many times I've talked to people and sort of said, yeah, we get a lot of tornadoes in, in Southern Ontario. Uh, and people sort of go, Oh, the big thing I think is that what we're, what we're doing is we're actually building into areas that we, you know, didn't have homes in before. In fact, the, the Barhaven tornado from the other day, uh, you know, it hit one, it hit a very new area, but hit an older area as well. The Barry tornado hit, um, hit a totally new area that did not have homes there before. I think that's a big part of it is the fact that we're, we're just, you know, our cities are expanding and we're just getting hit by, uh, by, by the weather that would have been there anyway in the past, but now we've got a city in the way. So with the wild, more and more wildfires being blamed on climate change, we can't say the same for tornadoes. I mean, they've, they've already kind of been there. Yeah. Tornadoes are a tricky thing. Um, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about like droughts and heat waves and the heat domes, that's sort of that's actually really good. We use that as very good evidence for, uh, for climate change. You can really show that there's a link to that. The problem with tornadoes uh, and you know, linking it directly to climate change is that they're a very rare phenomenon. So we need a lot, a lot, a lot of data um, to sort of figure out what's going on with, with thunderstorms and tornadoes. And now, having said all that, um, there's now evidence. And, and actually, I talked with a, a bunch of um, uh, tornado, very prominent tornado researchers for my TV show a couple of years ago, um, and we sort of came to the conclusion, we, we talked to them about the, the idea that Toronto Alley is actually beginning to shift a little bit northeast. And if you think of Toronto Alley as Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, but at the same time, you also have a lot, you know, we've got talking about Illinois, even Michigan. I mean, in some ways, Ontario was already a part of Tornado Alley, and now it's beginning to shift towards us. Uh, so that's something we're definitely paying attention to. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is storm chaser and meteorologist with the Weather Network, Mark Robinson. We're talking about the latest twister to hit Ottawa last Thursday. The, I guess the tornado alley or the corridor we're talking about stretches from, at least in Ontario, from, from Windsor all the way, well, all the way into Montreal, Quebec City. Montreal even got hit as well. Why is this area of particular... Uh, concern, if you will, for tornadoes. What what is happening with the land, or with the winds, or with the lakes that contributes to more and more of these? You've got you've got it right there. The lakes. <laughs> it's all about the lakes. I mean, Southern Ontario. I've actually talked with some of my meteorologist friends in uh, in Oklahoma, and that they're just they just sort of said that 
Ontario is one of the southern Ontario is one of the worst areas to try and forecast for because it is so tricky, and it's all because of the lakes. We get um, what we call lake breezes, which are essentially you know cold domes of air above the lake that extend inland just a little bit. And when you get storms that ride along those lake breezes, in fact, we actually had them yesterday. <laughs> Literally, we had like a bunch of storms uh, between Guelph and Hamilton yesterday, and that was all because of lake breezes. Um, you know, you'll get those, and you know those were that's the, those those little those areas where you'll get the uh, the extra thunderstorm. And if you've got one storm that's maybe not quite producing a tornado, and it hits the lake breezes, boom, it'll it'll set off a lake breeze or set off a, a tornado. So yeah, it's. The lakes are a big part of why we are so active here in southern Ontario. So what happens when the tornado forms? You, you mentioned the lake breezes and the, the kind of the hot and the cold air or the cool air. What 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 transpires in that mix of air that makes this tornado? Well, you know what? Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, you, you need, first off, you need like those hot, humid, hazy days uh, that we've actually had for the last little while. Um, but at the same time, you also need something to kick things off. So you need a little trigger. So you need a cold front or a warm front, something like that, like a change in the, in the air mass. Uh, but at the same time, after all that, you actually need the winds at the surface doing something a little bit different than, than upper, in the upper atmosphere. So you have a turning of the winds as you go up. So that'll spin the storms up. And once those storms start to spin, we call them supercells. And once those supercells get going, some of those can produce tornadoes. Um, we actually don't know yet why one supercell thunderstorm produces tornadoes and the other one doesn't, which is why giving warnings for these storms is so difficult and why we can only, at best, do about 15 to 20 minutes uh, of, war- of warning time for, for most tornadoes. Mark Robinson is a storm chaser and meteorologist with the Weather Network talking to us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML about tornadoes. You chase these things, and I still can't wrap my mind around why you do so, but w- what is the common denominator when you're looking for or, or sense that something is going to happen? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's really all about watching whether that storm is spinning or not. Like I, like I said about the supercells, you know, those are the ones that, that tend to produce tornadoes, um, that, that tend to be the most prolific tornado producers. Um, and you, you're often looking for the organization. Like, the, the storms don't produce tornadoes just out of and nowhere. Like, they don't just come out of anywhere in the storm. They actually come out of very specific spots. And so if that storm is extremely organized and it all looks like, it, you know, you've got a little bit of a spin to it, and you see what we call a lowering or a wall cloud underneath the one edge, that's where you watch for the potential tornado. So you can actually get surprisingly close if you know what you're doing um, and uh, to, to see the tornadoes. And the one thing I always like to say, though, is uh, I want to see a tornado out over an empty field uh, in the middle of nowhere. doesn't affect anybody. doesn't affect anything. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, especially given the amount of uh, population we've got in southern Ontario, they do affect, and, and that's what's something we try to do at the Weather Network is try to let people know, give them as much information, as much warm time uh, as possible. Environment Canada is the one that puts out the watches and the warnings, uh, but you know, at the Weather Network, we try to get that information out to our audiences fast as possible, and I'm just a part of that. Yeah, being the most uh, populous part of the country, it makes sense to, 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 to warn our listeners and, and people out there that uh, a storm is a brewing. Last one for you, we got about 30 seconds. The first tornado that you caught or chased, is it, is the last one that you caught or chased as enthralling as the first one that you did? Absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. Even the first <laughs> thunderstorm that I ever caught is still as interesting as the latest thunderstorm I ever caught. 
I, I may be a bit odd. There, there may be something wrong with me. No, I think you're perfectly fine, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for the time and uh, good luck on your next chase. No problem. My pleasure. Mark Robinson is a storm chaser and meteorologist with the Weather Network as we chat tornadoes here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Even though food prices in this country have risen about 20% over the last two years, a new survey from Chef's Plate shows that Canadian households throw away more than $2,000 worth of food each and every year. What a waste. How can we reduce that waste? Here to help us out is Shannon Crocker, registered dietitian and nutritionist, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon, welcome back to the show. How are you? Uh, good morning, Rick. I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good, but I'm, I'm miffed. Food waste is one of my biggest pet peeves because we love to complain about the price of food and the rising price of food, and rightfully so, but we throw out so much. Why? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's kind of complicated, but... You know, I think a couple of the reasons are because first off, we just buy too much food and we have no plan on how to use it. So we don't meal plan. Then also we cook too much. So we buy too much, then we cook too much. We don't have a plan for what to do with leftovers. They get shoved in the fridge and they get hidden by the other foods. <laughs> and uh, and I think a third thing is honestly, you know, connected to sort of disorganization in the kitchen and poor food storage. So we we don't store the food properly, so it goes bad, and we cram stuff into the fridge, the freezer, and the cupboard, and we don't, you know, we don't have an organization system that tells us, okay, this has to be eaten first. So I think those, you know, buying too much, cooking too much, and not storing properly are, are three big things that people are doing that are causing food waste. The modern day lifestyle contributes to this as well, right? To two parents, both working, the hustle and bustle of the day, you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. comes around. It's like, what are we going to make? I don't know. Let's just go eat out or we'll order something. Meanwhile, you have stuff in the fridge that you could be making. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of my top tips to help to reduce food waste is shop at home first. So do a kitchen inventory, you know, have a, have an idea of what you actually have in the cupboard, have in the fridge, have in the freezer and then you can make your meal plan uh, roughly. It doesn't have to be too complicated based on what you already have in the kitchen. So shop at home first before you head to the grocery store. That's a great tip. Shannon Crocker is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. You can find her online at shannoncrocker.ca. Maybe just as disturbing as the $2,000 figure is this, and that is Gen Z is spending not only the most amount of money on food, about $322 per week, but also the most wasteful generation when it comes to food. That is concerning. Yeah, and it's actually kind of surprising, uh, really, truly. And, and maybe it's because, you know, food skills haven't been taught in high school uh, like they used to be, right? So that generation is not getting the, the skills that they need to learn about how to store food, how to cook food without waste, like how to use, you know, you buy a chicken, how do you use the whole chicken, right? So all of those things, I think, come back really to food skills and being able to know how to properly cook, store, plan, shop for food. When we are planning our meals in advance, I know this is a big tip of yours, how far down the line should we go? Is it just a couple of days, a whole week's worth? What's the best process? Oh, yeah. You know what? I mean, there's some people out there who plan for the whole month, Rick. <laughs> That's not me, but wow. some people are very organized like that. Um, really, you know, I think if people look at meal planning and they think it seems like an overwhelming task, I say break it down. And just even at the beginning of the week, think about the first three days of the week. 
what are you going to have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? And that can help you like at least have that first little bit set up. And always, I always plan for what to do with those leftovers. That's key, right? So you want to have a plan for just a few days, rough plan. You don't have to plan all your snacks, just, you know, a rough, say even just dinner would would help, but always have a plan for what to do with those leftovers. Got about 30 seconds. Uh, there, there's going to be a continuous debate, I know, about best before dates or mm. or exp- expiration dates. W- what is your uh, tip in terms of relying on the date, but, you know, being okay with going past that date? Well, the first thing to know is that the best before date is not an expiry date. The best before date is about quality so that the food's going to be fresh and it's going to taste good. And so that's, you know, you can go beyond the best before date as long as the food has been stored properly. And that's really key. Um, So I would always say, you know, take a look at that best before date and then, you know, evaluate the food, see what it looks like, what it smells like. Does the texture still the same? Is the taste still the same? And then you can go from there. The only foods that have a a set expiry date are meal replacements, baby food, uh, formula and some supplements. So the rest of it is a bit of a, you know, getting to know the food. (laughs) Great advice, as always, from Shannon Crocker, registered dietitian and nutritionist online at shannoncrocker.ca. Shannon, thanks again for your time today. Uh, Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Boy, do we ever love our caffeine, whether it's caffeine and chocolate or caffeine in our drinks. I mentioned coffee, whether you're a coffee or a tea drinker. There's some in there as well. But is the amount that we're consuming on a day-to-day basis cause for concern? And why do we love caffeine so much? Dr. David Ma is a professor and director of the Guelph Family Health Study in the Department of Human Health and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Guelph and joins us now on GMH. Dr. Ma, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Thank you for having me. First off, we'll start with the love affair we have for caffeine. Why do we love this stuff so much? Um, yeah, so I should be honest. I, I am a lover of coffee and caffeine myself. So I'm I'm sipping away at my morning coffee, and uh, it's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh, coffee and caffeine has been with us uh, for many many years in many different cultures, and it's just a part of our our morning DNA. Are we over reliant on caffeine? Do we need it to get through the day? So coffee and, as you mentioned, coffee, tea, um, soft drinks, and and, uh, chocolate uh, contain caffeine. Uh, And caffeine is technically a uh, drug, and it's uh, one of the most uh, common drugs consumed legally around the world. Uh, So it has uh, stimulating properties uh, that lets us... uh, 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 get up in the morning, get going, uh, and 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 allows us to uh, get a little extra spring in our, our in our step. But uh, sometimes a little bit uh, too much of a good thing is is not a is not a healthy thing. So when do we get to that point? When does it become unhealthy? Sure. So in Health Canada for adults, uh, the recommended uh, uh, daily limit is uh, around 400 milligrams. And for those under 18, it's two and a half milligrams uh, per kilogram body weight. So for an adolescent uh, teenager, uh, depending upon your body weight, it's somewhere around 100 to 150 milligrams per day. So to put that into context, uh, a cup of coffee, uh, let's just ballpark it, it's about 100 milligrams per cup of coffee. Uh, soft drinks is about uh, 30 to 50 milligrams per day. Uh, tea is a little bit more than, than uh, tea contains a little bit more caffeine uh, than uh, coffee. And uh, chocolate, uh, just a touch of uh, caffeine. 
And uh, so uh, uh, the uh, uh, so in terms of coffee, then, uh, if it's 100 milligrams per cup of coffee and the limit is 400, uh, your maximum per day is about uh, three to four cups of coffee per day. Hmm. OK, well, I'm, I'm under that. So that's good. I'm about three max. Well, then I add a cup of tea, so I'm about four. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're probably pretty good. So by the end of the day, you're you're feeling okay. But yeah. if you're having a touch more than that, then you might just start to feel the jitters, feel a little bit more anxious. Your heart might be racing a little bit more, and that's where the potential danger is. Because if you exceed those limits, uh, you you get a little bit more than just stimulated, and uh, could lead to convulsions. Um, and, and a bit more and maybe a trip to the uh, emergency room. So when you are over-caffeinated, let's say this, this is the term we're going to use, what is happening in the body that is giving you those jitters and making that heart race a little faster? Well, it's a stimulant. Uh, so it's uh, stimulating your, your, your nervous system, your brain, your heart. And so you're going to have increased uh, heart rate uh, that could lead to a headache or, or a dizziness and and. and and uh, in excess, uh, potentially, you know, cumulatively, uh, some chest pain, convulsion, and then, and then that becomes very serious. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. David Ma, professor at the University of Guelph and also the director of the Guelph Family Health Study. We're talking about caffeine on GMH. Can it become an addiction? And, and I, I, I say that because, you know, I'll use myself as an example, and I don't think I'm addicted to caffeine, but... I'll have a cup of coffee at the same time, you know, one at around 4.30, one at around 6.30 to 7, so right about now, and maybe another one at 9. If not, I'll have my cup of tea about 3 in the afternoon. Are those time stamps signs of an addiction that come those times, I need a hit, I need a lift? Uh, sure, certainly. So there is uh, some uh, addictive properties to to coffee uh, on, on a small scale. And so that is a concern for especially young children. And so if young children are exposed to uh, regular caffeine usage early in life, uh, that uh, could uh, result in a greater dependency in adulthood. So in the uh, uh, by the Canadian Pediatric Society, they actually uh, recommend that children avoid or limit uh caffeine intake uh, during their early years. When it comes to those energy drinks or soft drinks, uh, we know that they're worse in terms of the sugar content, for sure. In terms of caffeine, are they on par with your regular cup of coffee or tea? So, so recently, there's been a recall of uh, energy drinks. And uh, so energy drinks uh, uh, as a whole uh, typically have high levels of, of caffeine. Uh, my understanding is that uh, uh, some of the energy drinks that have been in the news uh, contain about 200 milligrams of uh, caffeine. And so uh, within one uh, can of beverage, uh, they quickly far exceed uh, the maximum limits recommended for children. And having a couple of them uh, ex uh, meet the threshold for the upper limit for adults. Interesting stuff. Dr. Ma, thank you very much for your insight into this. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. David Ma is a professor at the University of Guelph and director of the Guelph Family Health Study.
uh, giving us the lowdown of caffeine, why we love it so much, and how in some uh, set of circumstances, depending on how much you drink, can be uh, detrimental to your health. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, after starring for the McMaster University women's basketball team, Sarah Gates continues to be a role model, not only on the court, but off the court, especially for young females. And Sarah joins us now here on GMH on 900 CHML. Sarah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. I do want to talk about your basketball exploits because they are continuing on a professional front. You're going to be playing in Germany. Yeah, I know. I'm really excited. It's literally like a dream turned into reality. Why this dream? Obviously playing pro, everyone in, in every sport wants to go pro. Doing so in another country and on another continent has got to be uh, interesting, exciting. There's maybe some apprehension or anxiousness, uh, all the feels here. Yeah, um, I'm definitely excited for change of pace within my game and to learn from new people and new styles and get better. But I'm definitely a little bit nervous about moving across the world, but it's good nerves. How is your German? I downloaded Duolingo, so it's getting better. <laughs> good luck on that front. Your career at McMaster, I mean, it was just flooded with honors and awards, U-Sports Athlete of the Year this past season, OUA Female Athlete of the Year, U-Sports Outstanding Women's Basketball Player of the Year. When you look back at all the incredible games over so many years at Mac, what sticks out to you? What comes to mind? How would you sum up your hoops career? Uh, it's, it's definitely hard. And I feel like every graduating student athletes kind of going through it right now, thinking about those same things, but I would honestly say, um, there's not necessarily like one thing other than a national championship that kind of stinks, sticks out, but the memories that I've made over the years at Mac with my coaches and my teammates have just kind of shaped me into who I am today. And they're just, laughs and memories that I uh, will cherish forever. Well, and you are helping shape the stars of tomorrow because not only are you the president of the Women's Athletic Leadership Committee, you're also the founder of that uh, committee. Talk about the genesis in having this idea to bring this to reality and and the purpose that it is serving. Yeah. Um, during COVID, I, I, like everyone, I had a lot of time to kind of think and think about things of how I wanted to improve things in my life and life for others. So I started the club and it basically is just kind of uh, a place where and that, that encourages women to support other women because I've seen the impact of bringing like-minded women together. And I think that it's just the start, especially within women's sports. So I just wanted to create a platform for um, women to kind of have their own area to grow and find their voices and support each other within sport. What kind of impact are you already seeing with this? Uh, it's huge. Like the within our McMaster community, what's brought sports teams together. It's helped people just meet each other, find new friends. It's helped people find their voices. I know it's helped me find my voice. If you were to ask me this, like if I were to ever get involved in something like this within my first or second year, like I probably would have said no, but now it's kind of what I base my personality around. So it's huge. Why would you have said no? I think that I just didn't see the, I was, I was young and I didn't necessarily have a voice outside of just being a basketball player. Um, my coach 
Teresa Burns is the reason I've kind of found my path there. She's always helped us know that outside of athletics, we can do more, but also knowing that within sport, using your voice can have a huge impact. And that kind of really was a, was an important life learning piece for me. And now I just want to do that for the next generation of female athletes. Coach Burns, an absolute legend, the OG in terms of inspiring the stars of tomorrow. One of those is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sarah Gates, basketball superstar with McMaster University, now off to Germany uh, in what, within the next couple of weeks or a month? Yeah, I'm, they haven't booked my flights yet, but it will be within a month. Okay, that's exciting. The uh, The big purpose of the committee, again, it's the Women's Athletic Leadership Committee, is helping young females stay in sports. Uh, why is that important to you? Oh, it's it's so important. If you look at like any statistics, it's it's in like high school and even elementary school, the dropout rate for for girls is so much higher than it is for younger boys. So the goal is to kind of show girls that it's sports are a place for them. It's an environment for them to thrive, whether you like sports, whether you it's just an opportunity to be to be athletic and get moving. You can make friends and it's just relationships and memories that you'll have for your life. So we'll go into uh, local elementary schools and high schools and run PE classes, whether if the basketball team goes, then we run basketball. If the rugby team goes, then they teach them rugby. And I think that it can have a huge impact on um, finding role models within sport um, that look like them. Like I know my first female coach was really Teresa Burns in basketball. I had a, I had some really, really well soccer coaches, but uh, it makes an impact for sure. Absolutely. Sarah, we wish you a continued success with the committee and especially as you enter the pro ranks in Germany. Best of luck going forward. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.